Let me ask you to please open your Bibles now to the book of 2 Samuel. I say please open your Bibles because there was a Sunday in a church outside of New Orleans that I planted and I stood up to get ready to preach and I said open your Bibles. This man got up and walked out. I said well what do you expect you're in church? Hopefully somebody looks at a Bible and I actually saw him later and I asked him, I said, why did you leave? Were you not ill or not well or you had to catch a plane or what? And he looked at me and said, I don't like anybody telling me what to do. You told me to open the Bible. <laughs> and I wanted to say, but did not say because the Holy Spirit restrained me. I wanted to say, you got more problems than that, buddy. <laughs> Bigger problems than that. So now I always say, please. See, he got his way with me. I always ask you to please open your Bible, so that's why I do it. Just thought I'd add that to lighten it up a little bit. Today we're looking at the civil war that occurs uh, between the house of David and the house of Saul, uh, the representatives being Abner and Joab. And today we're going to be looking at the text out of 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 32. And I think this uh, passage is exceedingly interesting uh, because it has a little bit of uh, warfare in it, but also it's exceedingly interesting because God is showing us how his kingdom comes. And it doesn't come in ways that we expect. And so that's why I find this passage uh, fascinating. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 8. But Abner, son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Men Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old. When he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now we're at verse 12. You thought I messed up, but we're at verse 12 now. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, and the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the other side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. This is not a swimming pool. This is a huge rock area which had been carved out, and it was rather large and deep, just so you know. And... Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Wow. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten 
before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asael? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asael, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell, uh, fell there and died where he was. And all who had came to the place where Asael had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies uh, before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the, the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, matching the whole morning, and then they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asael. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asael and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we open our hearts and our minds to your word, that the Holy Spirit, who inspired this word, would bring illumination uh, and enlightenment to our souls so that we may not only see but also behold and be captured by the truth which is your word and we pray that we might be able to see how this text written thousands of years ago has something to say to us at this time and at this place in this culture in this year and this we pray in Christ's name amen now, one of the characteristics of our times, that is in the year 2022, is the politicization of everything. This text 
is a lot about politics. It's a lot about negotiation. It's a lot about two sides coming together for a meeting, attempting to negotiate some kind of relationship. But in our world today, everything has now become politicized. Everything. And it is the lens through which many see the world. And today's text is a story of human politics. And a number of people attempted to control the coming of the kingdom of David by their own efforts, and others are trying to make it happen, and some sought to turn the kingdom to their advantage, but none of the people who are attempting to bring the kingdom in, as it were, was good enough, wise enough, or powerful enough to accomplish it. As I said, we live in an age where the architectonic rubric over everything is politics. It's the touchstone of almost everyone in our culture's worldview. Hopefully, Christian is accepted. Uh, but the one, one thing that I remember in my studies in seminary, we studied the philosopher Herman Duyverd. And if you listen to the last name and you're Dutch, you know he's one of your guys. But Herman was brilliant, and Herman developed something he called sphere sovereignty. And he said that basically all the sciences you run into at your local university are spheres of, uh, that God has created, brought into the world of ideas that we have discovered, and we're to cultivate that and develop that and go with that. And the sciences, be it biology or philosophy or ethics or... Um, science itself or uh, politics or all of these rubrics are all underneath what he understood as the queen of the sciences. What made the university have uni, oneness, unity? Above all of these divisions of thought, was the architectonic rubric or thought of theology. Theology was the queen of the sciences. Theology was that under which all of these others have gathered. But there's no theology in our world anymore. There's no influence of that kind of way of seeing and understanding in Western culture anymore, let me say. Hardly any. And so now, these particular dimensions, whether it's psychology, sociology, any of them, get uh, absolutized and become the way in which we see and understand everything. And if you turn on a news channel today, for heaven's sakes, and you're looking for news, good luck, as John Calvin would say. You're not going to find any news. But what you will find is people arguing constantly on how quote, the kingdom uh, will come in, the kingdom thereafter. Michael Foucault, or Michel Foucault, a French philosopher, back during the last century in the 50s, developed something he called deconstruction and the idea of truth claims. And Foucault said this, all propositional statements or truth claims a person makes are a power grab. Everything's about power. We're all trying to seize power. And so any statement we make is an attempt to seize power. You look at our world today, and there's lots of focus and attention upon things like gender, race, identity, uh, sexuality, 
And Foucault would say, if he's consistent with his philosophy, that every one of those areas are attempting to seize power because they feel oppressed. Now here's Foucault's problem. His statement that all truth claims are power grabs is a power grab, if he's consistent. But here's the issue. He is right insofar as there is a connection between anybody's worldview, anybody's philosophy, anybody's issue they stand on, and the attempt to seize power. The ironic thing is the only truth claims that are not a power grab, and you know I'm going to say this, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't seize power. Rather, Jesus came and said this, I didn't come to serve or to be served but to serve others and become a ransom for many. Christ himself demonstrated the last thing that could have been called a power grab, and yet that death 2,000 years ago or more has accomplished more in change than any other philosophy or worldview. So why say all that before we do this? Because what we have here is Abner, who represents the Saul point of view, loyal to Saul. He's a Saulide. That's what you call him. And he is quite a warrior, quite an impressive guy. Uh, he's got, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, power, but it's more bravado. And then on the other side, you have Joab, who's David's guy. And Joab is exactly the same. They're both very experienced powerful warriors. And so there are three things that happen in this particular text that I want us to understand. But before I say that, one last thing about politics. Human politics are messy. You say, tell me something I didn't know. Human politics are messy. Politics carry all uh, the uh, um, politics are controversial. One definition of politics that I ran across in my preparation was the use of underhanded and unscrupulous methods in obtaining power or advancement within an organization. Now that might sound a bit cynical, but we see it happening, don't we? That usually carries the day. Politics can be a very healthy process whereby policies and actions are formulated and enacted by an organization or a society and the Bible actually encourages and honors and respects politics of these kinds. Uh, Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God. But a widespread cynicism is not good. It is understandable when you take into account the problem of original sin. You see, every attempt to grab power is either driven by um, motives that have been cleansed and washed, hopefully by the blood of Christ, or driven by motives that are strictly out for their own self-serving, foolish, dishonest, and corrupt power. Our only realistic hope as people now in our world is not politics. I know some of you are thinking, I can't wait till November gets here so I can go cast my vote. And you should. I'm not against that. And you should vote your conscience and vote your convictions. I'm for that. But to think that that's going to bring the kingdom in, no. 
Original sin, everybody's got it. And sin affects and distorts life the way it ought to be. Sin is self-destructive. It is destructive. And so we need something more than just a political position to hope in. Our only realistic hope is the kingdom of God. Human politics, although capable of a measure of goodness, wisdom, and effectiveness, as well as much evil, foolishness, and failure, cannot bring in the kingdom. Only God's king can do that. And so don't absolutize politics in your life and which party is in control or in power. You uh, belong to two kingdoms. You're a citizen, Philippians says, of the kingdom of heaven, but you're also a, a, a citizen of the kingdom of man, as it were. And so we do have a way, but your hope, that which you count on, that which you are sure will ultimately deliver, is never in this world or in the machinations of this world. So the situation we come to in chapter 2 and verse 12 in 2 Samuel was this. In Hebron, David was acknowledged as God's king five years earlier. And then in Menahaim, Ishbosheth, that is the son of Saul, more recently it was installed as a rival king by Saul's commander. What is it that we can do about this, they must have thought. How will this situation ever be worked out? And so there are three acts to this play that I want to focus on uh, for the balance of our time. Number one, the two sides meet together in Gilboa. That is Joab representing David, Abner representing Ishbosheth. Act two, is the two sides are in conflict all day. In Acts 3, the two sides reach a truce, sort of, kind of. So let's get right into this. Neither king is involved in any of these events of the day. Abner and Joab attempt to resolve the situation by talk plus action. It was political. The politicians were not wise enough, good enough, or strong enough and the limitations of politics were underlined three times that day. So as we look at verses 12 through 17, we see the two sides meeting together. Saul and Abner were cousins. He journeys 50 miles or more from Gibeon, the headquarters of, the, of uh, Ishbosheth, close to the northern border of Judah in a territory of Benjamin the tribe. Uh, Ishbosheth uh, was represented here by Abner and they come to the city of Gibeon which was mentioned in the conquest in Joshua chapter 9 where the Gibeonites tricked or defrauded the Israelites during that period. So there is some history connected here. In verse 13 we meet for the first time Joab, the commander of David's army, and his two brothers, Abishai and Asael. Notice that they are no, uh, identified by their mother's name. That's not usually how the Bible does it, but they are here. And the reason why they're uh, identified with their mother's name, Zeruiah, is because she was David's sister. And so the connection to David these guys are David's nephews. 
So it's all in the family, so to speak. And they all gather at this pool in Gibeon. And uh, these nephews of David, the three guys that I just mentioned, are, are known uh, to be intensely loyal to David, but also a cause for considerable difficulty for David. Eager for violent solutions, Joab to David was what Abner was for Ishbosheth, and the meeting, more than likely, was prearranged. Now, I'm not going to get into the motives of what Abner was up to. I have my suspicions, but we will deal with him later where it becomes more clear. But they were attempting to meet, and so these three nephews of David are really mixed bag. One of the habits that I have as a pastor, and I learned this old trick a long time ago, is that when somebody new shows up in your church and they've either, either been a pastor or a teaching elder or a deacon and I don't know anything about them, I call their former pastor and I do a little detective work. You say, you shouldn't do that, Pastor Tim. I'm not stupid. <laughs> I call people and I say, well, what do you think of this person? And I'll never forget there was a guy when I first started the church here he was a little bit suspect in my eyes, and I'd heard some things about him. I said, well, I don't want to judge the guy for the past. I'm going to take my time and be careful. So I called a pastor of his who has been his pastor for like 20 years. And I said, this guy is here, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, how I should be his pastor. He said, I know exactly what you're talking about. I said, well, what would you say? He said, he listed about... 15 things that the guy was really great and really good at. And then he listed 14 things that the guy was really, really bad about and could cause a lot of trouble. And I said, at the end of the day, what would you do? And he said, I'd take him. So I did. And it was about right. <laughs> but that's exactly what's going on here. We're seeing these guys who represent David, and they were certainly, as we would say, a mixed bag. And so they met at a place where the pool was uh, a pool out of deep-hewn rock, aligned on either side, seemed like a placid place, you know, uh, an environment to come together. The two commanders talk. They seem to have no thirst at all for any kind of fight. And David uh, uh, had no... Um, indication of ever going north and attempting to expand his kingdom into this area, Abner goes south to make Ishbosheth king over all Israel, um, and maybe negotiations could help kind of settle this down to where there wouldn't have to be any kind of war. Ab takes the initiative and he offers a competition. Now, what this competition is, is very much like the competition between Goliath and anybody who would fight him. Goliath re represented the Philistines. Of course, we know David represented Israel. Whoever won the fight won the day. And so they were hoping they could each pick 12 soldiers, probably their best, set up a situation in which they have a contest with swords, and uh, let them go at one another and see what happens. It sounds like a gladiator movie to me. But that's pretty much what it was. Have you seen this commercial on television lately where this guy's walking across a crosswalk and he sees a person, mirror image of himself, and they start fighting? 
Have you seen that? Where they're wrestling and they're not throwing punches, but they're not getting anywhere. They're just, you know, going at it and neither one of them gets hit because he knows what the other guy's going to do and they block all these punches and eventually they spin out and they walk away. Well, what happened in this fight was they immediately went for the sword, killed each other on the spot, 24 people dead. No outcome, no winner. Now that had to be something to see, but immediately dead. Now this was Abner's idea, by the way, just so you know. And so the two teams represented the 12 tribes, I take it. They represented the two kings, and it was more messy. Simultaneously, 24 men fell down together. There was no peace or unity here, and the place was known as the Field of Stone Knives. And the aftermath led to a fierce day-long Bible. And so... uh, the uh, street fighting sort of continues. But there was a fierce day-long battle, and we get an early indication that David's side does win that. Act two, the the two sides have conflict all day, and the narrator spares us many details. But the sons of Zeruiah, Joab, Abishai, and Asael, uh, were become the focus of this next section. And Ashael was known as being swift of foot. He must have been quite an athlete, very fast, could run, probably very young, in great shape, unbelievable. And so he uh, decides to take action, and he starts chasing Abner. And Abner, who's probably older and not as swift as foot, turns around and notices that uh, uh, Asa L is following. And so Abner warns him in verses 20 to 23 that he did not want to fight. He was a seasoned warrior. He knew if those two fought, he would obviously win. And so he gave him sage advice. And he says, go um, over and take somebody over there, weaker, younger, and take their spoil and go home. Leave me alone. Don't bother me. But he's a veteran soldier, and he played an old trick that stopped the whole army cold. He took his spear, and rather than turning it around to where the pointed part was, although I do believe that spears in this time were also pointed on the other end so they could stab him in the ground. But what does he do? He does this old trick. He's running. Asael catches up, he stops immediately, thrusts the spear back, and it goes all the way through. Asael kills him, dead on the spot. And so there he has Asael. Now here's what's in the back of Abner's mind. Abner knows Joab, and he knows Joab ain't having none of this. And so he begins to panic a little bit inside, and so he continues to flee uh, first, everybody stood still in awe and stunned silence. It was a shocking development, but there were two men who did not allow the horror of Asael's death to immobilize them. Both Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. Of course, Abner argues he was right in killing Asael, but he knew uh, that if he did that, he was going to have conflict with Joab, and Joab was a street fighter and ready for blood. So they came to the hill of Amah, 
which now introduces Act 3, the two sides reach a sort of kind of truce. Now here's what happens. When Asa gets to the top of the hill with whoever he has running with him, you know, they've already lost 320 men, he gets into Benjamin. That's Saul's territory. That's Saul's tribe. They are under the uh, kingship of Ishbosheth, and so the Benjamites come out. It might have been an army standing there at the top of the hill with, with Abishai, uh, Abishai and Joab at the bottom. I don't think two guys want to take on a whole army. And so they have a conversation, and this conversation comes to the place where they want a solution, but Abner does not want a solution through bloodshed. So he sought to restart negotiations. And Abishai's speech, or Abner's speech is noble, but it had a flaw in it. He ended up blaming Joab, saying, you started it. And Joab corrected him and said, no, I didn't start it. It was your idea to have the competition. And so we're told at the end that Joab had 20 casualties, including his brother, Asael, and <clears throat> Abner had 360. But I want to call your attention, and this is where this whole message is driving, and it's this. Where did they end up? They ended up in Bethlehem. Why is Bethlehem significant? Where was David anointed by Samuel to be king? Bethlehem. Where did the King of Kings and Lord of Lords experience birth? Bethlehem, right? You remember that old little town of Bethlehem? How still we see thee lie? And so there's a pointing in this text to Bethlehem <coughs> talking about how the king comes. Now you think about the way Jesus was born. Jesus was born in a cattle stall in a little bitty nowhere place, out-of-the-way place, where there must have been a bakery because Bethlehem means the house of bread. And so Jesus was born, I mean, he's not born in a palace. There's not a huge to-do about it. There's not big parades and everybody celebrating the day. He's born in the middle of nowhere, giving you the idea that the way this guy is going to bring his kingdom is not the way you expect. You see, one of the things we don't understand as Christians, and this is one application for us all, is that we accomplish more through weakness, through our limitations, through our um, lack of resources and strength, because God makes his strength perfect in our weakness. You know, we all think, I, I used to think, if we could just see certain celebrities converted, uh, then, man, everybody, Christianity would be popular, and all these cool people coming into the kingdom. And, of course, some of that happened in places, and they brought them to give their testimony, and two weeks later, they were living anything but a Christian life. And so you've got to be careful with that kind of stuff. But we always think we win through strength. We win through power. We win through our own uh, brilliance and our own strategies and our own plots. When in reality, God does more through your weakness than he ever does through your strength. That's the way of the kingdom of God. The way of the world is power. Gain power. Get more power. And yet, when you look at the way Jesus inaugurates his kingdom, it's through dying the death of a criminal on a cross. 
And how powerful did that look? What a coronation for a king, right? He dies on a cross. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. Resurrects on the third day. His uh, resurrection was testified to by women whose testimony was not even received in a court. Do you see God's ways here? God's ways are not glamorous. They're not Hollywood. God's ways are through weakness, not strength. Bethlehem would feature again in God's strange ways of establishing his kingdom. A millennium after the events of 2 Samuel 2, a son of David was born in Bethlehem. He is the king whom David could only dimly foreshadow. In God's strange ways, the death and resurrection of Jesus was his victory over all evil. And the kingdom of his Christ is now advancing in the world by the weak foolishness and the word of the cross, which people regard, if they're sophisticated, as foolishness, if they're religious, as a stumbling block getting in the way of me saving myself. But you see, that's the nature of the kingdom that's coming. And David, though dimly, and I don't want to read too much into it, I don't want to see a type under every rock, but there's a foreshadowing here of the nature of the kingdom. What did the theologians in the first century expect the kingdom of God to be? A military operation where Rome is overthrown and a king is established in Jerusalem. Some people are still looking for that. But that's not how it comes. It came through weakness. It came through laying down. It came through death. And sometimes, you know, we want to we win. We want to be on top. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways and God's thoughts higher than our ways. Our strategies, our plans, our negotiations, our politics, our proposal are no more able to bring peace and harmony and justice and righteousness than the efforts of Abner and Joab. We're all Abners and Joabs, by the way. How pathetic are our efforts sometimes to advance the kingdom of God. Don't be surprised that the best human efforts achieve less than we hope for, often much less. Now, do I believe that the church in its present condition, I get this all the time when I talk to unbelievers, and I mention the fact that you know, they'll find out I'm a preacher, it happened, the word's out at my gym, everybody knows. I was trying to fly low. So I could talk to people. I guess God now wants them to know. So even more people are lining up. And the favorite question I get is, why doesn't God do something about the shape of the world? Why doesn't he do something? Say, why can't he just fix this? Why is he waiting? What is he doing? Why doesn't God do something? Now there's a side of me who wants to go, oh, okay, you're smarter than God. Why don't you tell him what he needs to do? But that's the that's part of me that Jesus is just trying to kill the flesh but that's a question many people have in their minds why God has already done something about it he is already doing something about it God did the most about it in one respect in the coming of his son the first time where he laid down his life for sinners to save and accomplish their redemption lived a life of righteousness to give them in order to keep them from my simple gospel is this I can't go to heaven because I'm too guilty and I'm too filthy. I'm unclean and I am culpable. I have sinned. 
with a high hand before the face of God. Jesus took care of both of those problems. He lived the life I should have lived and couldn't. He died the death I deserved to die and didn't because of him. Now I can enter his presence. So it isn't me climbing any kind of ladder. It's Jesus coming to me with that word and accomplishing in my heart through that word redemption. But here's, here's the point I'm trying to drive at. We, we, we look at the fantastic, the super, whatever. But only when we remember Bethlehem will we pray. You know, part of the Lord's prayer is praying that the kingdom will come. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. He will consummate the kingdom. He will come again. He will bring it in. And then you will see all the glory and the power forever and ever demonstrated. But understand where we are. We're a minority. We've always been a minority. We've always been a disrespected lot. I know it hurts you as it hurts me to see Christianity so savagely denied and persecuted, full of hatred and, and hate for, this, for Jesus. And now it's much more overt because it's popular. It doesn't cost anybody anything to say that because you used to get uh, a reputational capital out of at least trying to be a nice person who went to some church somewhere once in a while. Now none of that matters. People don't care. And so they've turned on us, and they'll turn even more, probably get worse before it gets better. But here's the point. You've got to understand how God works. You've got to understand how God works. And it's through weakness. i never forget when I moved here in 1988 to Las Vegas, Nevada, from Water Valley, Mississippi, of all places in the world. And you want to talk about a culture shock... It'd be a culture shock for anybody that grew up here to live in Water Valley, Mississippi, I'll tell you that. But I moved here, and I remember I went to the bank to try to cash the paycheck the mission agency sent me. And it was made out to my name from the Presbyterian Church in America. I go in the bank. They look at me and say, we've never heard of that. I said, you never heard of what? They said, the Presbyterian Church in America. I said, you've never heard of the Presbyterian Church ever? Did you take history? Are you aware that some of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were Presbyterians? Well, I don't care about that. I don't know who you are. This is right in the middle of the Jim and Tammy Faye Baker uh, trial, and I guess they thought I was trying to take them for some money. Well, they held my paycheck for a month. I was not well healed financially. So I'm looking around going, well, this is a great testimony for all the people that are interested in this church. I can't pay my bills. I can't pay my rent. I can't do anything because they don't know who you are. And then I remembered I went out to uh, talk to people about this new church I was starting. They said, well, where's your building? Well, we don't have one. Well, who are, who, who's your membership? We don't have any. Well, what kind of government do you have? Me, a benevolent dictator. That's what you've got. And you want to talk about feeling like nothing. I went to first uh, church planters training conference and they asked me how you're doing. I said, I've never felt like less than nothing in my whole life. These people out here, they think I'm an absolute loser. And the guy looked at me and said, well, you are, just live with it. <laughs> but it never comes, the power of God working, never comes like you expect, never. So remember, if you think you have nothing to offer in his kingdom, you do. 
Because God uses people just like you and me to accomplish miracles in this world. Anytime anybody's saved, you, you must understand a spiritual resurrection has occurred. It's a miracle. Anybody ever gets saved if you understand the depravity of human beings. Now, when you think about the kingdom and how it comes, this is not how it comes. We'll see how it comes as we continue this series. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this service. We pray your blessings upon uh, each person who has heard your word, and I pray that we will learn, as Paul did with his thorn in the flesh, that your power flows through our weakness, not our strength. When we humble ourselves and extend the empty hand and depend upon you, that's how you accomplish great things in this world for your kingdom. That's the kingdom way, serving, laying down your life, being willing to give generously. And so, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give now as people who've been purchased by you and are so grateful to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.